Well, here we are again. <laughs> if you do not have a bulletin with you, uh, raise your hand. We're going to need a, everyone need one for the rest of the morning. And while uh, ushers are handing those out, well, I've had many comments on my tie. Is it on? It's on. The green light went on. How does that happen? Uh, one of my great-granddaughters, uh, Maddie, has established a tradition. You know I love blinking red lights. Do we need a battery? Tell you what, you can hear me anyway, can't you? Okay, I'll use this one. I don't need this at all. There we are. Well, I, my, my great-granddaughter, Maddie, has established a tradition every year. She gives me a Christmas tie. And so I'm obligated to wear it. And I understand they shop at the most exclusive stores. And uh, this one came from the dollar store. And it has something here, press here. And it's supposed to make music. And it did the first time we pressed it. And I think Nancy Harkins or Ed pushed on it Wednesday and it broke. <laughs> So, uh, how about that? <laughs> well, you know, every fifth Sunday we do something different. And as the elders thought about this fifth Sunday, the question was, what will we do? And one idea was presented, well, it's the Sunday after Christmas. What if we would just sing carols and tell the stories behind them, and that would be different. And it's really fitting because last Sunday night we didn't get to go caroling. The weather prevented it. And you know, I got to thinking about it for at least for 40, maybe 50 years. That's the first time I haven't gone caroling. So I uh, broke the tradition, and at my age it's time to start breaking some traditions. <laughs> oh, come all ye faithful. And by the way, as we sing these songs, you might keep your seat. Otherwise, you'll be bobbing up and down, and no need to do that. In the middle 1700s, the Church of England controlled the religious landscape in Britain. And Roman Catholics were forbidden from openly practicing their faith. And as a result, a large number of Roman Catholic priests went to Douai, France. They did some very significant things while they were there. One thing they did was produce the first Roman Catholic Bible in the English language that had the imprimatur uh, of the bishops and the Pope. And so today the Reims-Douai version of the Bible, the English version of the Bible in the Catholic faith, is a result of the the Church of England's not allowing Catholics to practice their faith in the British Empire. One of those priests was a man named John Francis Wade. While in Douay, he devoted himself to the study of ancient Christian music. He did a lot of research. He took scores. He was a calligrapher as well as a musician. Produced some very beautiful scores and then passed these out around the countryside, and the churches uh, began using them in their choirs. But he also composed a number of hymns. In 1745, he composed a deste 
Fidelis and included it in a book of hymns that he published in 1751. He never translated that hymn, that carol, into English. But there was a man by the name of Fred Oakley. He was a, a Unitarian minister in England, and he translated it into English. This was brought to the United States really as late as just before 1900, 30 years before I was born, and has already become one of the most beloved Christmas carols. By the way, Noel means Christmas carol. <laughs> It comes from the Latin word natal that means birth, went to the French, and now it is carol. Oh, come all ye faithful, let's sing. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, oh sing all ye bright hosts of heaven above. Glory to God all, glory in the adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning, Jesus, to thee be all glory again. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Well, in recent years, there have been a lot of stories circulated about the origin of the Christmas carol, Silent Night. One story says that Joseph Moore, who was an assistant priest, in Obendorf, Salzburg, uh, Austria, was preparing for the Christmas Mass and discovered that a mouse had eaten a hole in the bellows of the organ. And so they couldn't play the organ for the evening service. And he asked his, his good friend Franz Gruber if he would compose a song 
that could be played on the guitar for that service that night, and uh, Gruber did, and Moore wrote the words, and it was performed the first time, Christmas Eve, 1818. Now, that's a lovely story, but it isn't true. <laughs> but the story behind the composition of the song, frankly, is much more touching. 1792, an Austrian soldier by the name of Franz Joseph Moore was stationed in Obendorf, and it was a custom in the Austrian army for soldiers who were posted at a particular fort or place to be housed in apartments and dwellings in the city. And there was a woman by the name of Maria Schreiber and her daughter Anna. They had two houses. They were both knitters. Their income was very low. And so they supplemented their income by renting rooms in their two houses. They rented one to Franz Joseph Moore. Now the house was quite small. And there were only two beds in the house in one room. So everybody had to share beds and take a turn. Uh, without going into detail, the result of that arrangement ended up that Franz Joseph Moore got Anna pregnant. In the house, there were five women. There was Anna, and there was Maria, and Anna's three, uh, two daughters, uh, a niece. And when someone became pregnant out of wedlock in Salzburg, Austria, when they became an unwed mother, instead of going on welfare, they were fined. And so when Franz Joseph learned that he had impregnated Anna, he fled rather than staying behind to help pay the fine. He deserted the army and just took off for the hills. Well, the city said that because this was the third carnal offense, you already had two illegitimate daughters, Anna was going to be fined nine florins, which was equal to one year's income that she would make as a knitter. She either had to pay the fine or spend a year in the workhouse. What a spot. Now, in the town, there was the executioner, Franz Joseph Welhumer, who everybody hated. He had beheaded 80 men. <laughs> he had tortured 200 people to get their confessions. The people of the town would have nothing to do with him. He was a huge man, ugly, intimidating, very rich, and very lonely. And he thought, is there anything I can do to change my relationship with my neighbors? That was constantly on his mind. And when he learned about this fine that was going to be imposed on Anna, he thought, here's an opportunity. And so he said, I will pay the fine if you will allow me to be the child's godfather. Anna said, what choice do I have? And so she accepted the offer. Franz Joseph Wilmoth paid the fine, 
became the child's godfather, he realized that when the child was christened, he would not be allowed by the priest to take the child from the font. So he sent one of his agents to take care of that. And when the baby was born, he became a very lonely child because he was a bastard, because he was the godchild of the executioner, he was banned from attending school. He was not allowed to learn any trade. He was not allowed to take any kind of a job. And no parents in the city would allow their children to play with Joseph. So he was a lonely child. Sometimes he would go down to the river and he would catch a ride on one of the barges and then walk back. Sometimes he played on the steps that led to the monastery that was in the town. But he was gifted with a beautiful voice. And he sang. One day, playing on the steps and singing, the choir master of the monastery heard him. How can we waste such a beautiful voice? So he immediately grabbed the child and went to his mother and said, Would you allow me to take this child into my elite school? He had an elite school that only 28 students attended from the best uh, families in town. She agreed. He became an outstanding student, was always in the top tenth of his class. By the age of 12, he had mastered guitar, organ, and violin. He was in a just born to be a musician. And later, in 1815, he was ordained a priest. Now, early in his priesthood, he was moved from many, many places. And while he was in his uh, first post in 1816, he began to write poetry. And he wrote a poem describing the birth of Jesus. Two years later, he was moved to Obendorf, and the Christmas Mass was drawing close, and he'd become close friends of Franz Gruber, who was both the local schoolmaster and the church organist. And he said, you know, Franz, I've written this beautiful poem about Christmas. I would like to have it set to music. Could you compose a song that could be played on the guitar and sung as a duet. And so Franz Gruber composed the melody that we know as Silent Night, Holy Night. And Moore played the guitar. <laughs> and Gruber and Moore sang a duet Christmas Eve, 1815. Moore never forgot the childhood. And just the fortuitous circumstances that had delivered him from his very sad life. And so in his very last post, he opened a school for poor children. He gave almost his entire income to this project and died as poor as he was when he was born. One account I read said when he died, all he had was the garment he wore, his pipe, <laughs> and his pipe bag. 
I guess where he carried his tobacco. Everything else had been given to this school. And here's the man who left us this beautiful song, Silent Night, Holy Night. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Testament church didn't, didn't include music as a part of its Sunday service. Christians met chiefly to partake of the Lord's Supper, and when we read the writings of the very first century church, we find a description of how they met. They met together, and according, for instance, to Justin Martyr writing about 140 A.D., he says the presiding elder of the day would read from the memoirs of the apostles, which of course is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And uh, if there were time, he would make some comment on them. 
And then they had the Lord's Supper. And if someone were not able to be present, then the deacons took the Lord's Supper to their home. So the Lord's Supper was the focus of every Sunday. And if there were a visiting prophet, he might be allowed to say a word or two. <laughs> and uh, if they had any music at all, it was a closing psalm mirroring in the Last Supper, remember Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn and then went on out to the mount. So music did not become a part of the church until the embryonic gaze of Roman Catholicism. Uh, as Roman Catholicism began to form and grow, it increasingly began to reflect the Old Testament and the temple uh, more than it did the New Testament church. For example, elders became priests. Instead of meeting in homes or modified church homes, church buildings began to erect it. Finally, great cathedrals and, frankly, their architecture probably exceeds Solomon's temple in, in some of its beauty. Instead of a holy of holies in the church, they began to have a sacred place called the sanctuary where the uh, elements of communion were kept in this small cabinet. In the Old Covenant, boys were circumcised the eighth day, and so children were sprinkled, really similar to the Old Testament covenant practice. But in time, music also entered the church service. First, it was a psalm chanted just by the priest. And then in time, two priests, and they antiphonally would chant. One would chant, the other would respond. And then in time, choirs were developed. And again, most of the song was antiphonal. The priest would sing, the choir would respond. And the style of music is a style that's known as plain song, P-L-A-I-N-S-O-N-G, not something that's like, he's the plainest looking man I ever saw, but like the rain is falling mainly on the plain, you know, <laughs> plain song. Plain song's a chant, and again, usually sung antiphonally. And it's interesting, one of the oldest songs, and some would say the oldest song that we sing today in our churches uh, is one of these plain songs. In the 13th century, someone arranged one of these Christmas chants in the song that we now sing as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And this morning we're going to sing that song, but just think when we sing this song, we're uniting our voices with those who for 800 years <laughs> have sung this almost every Sunday. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. 
shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and desnark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. About six months after the end of the Civil War, just two months after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, three men, two ministers, Erastus Milo Kravath, and Edward P. Smith, along with their friend John Ogden, established in Nashville, Tennessee, a school they named Fisk School. <laughs> now, it was named Fisk School because General Clinton B. Fisk of the Tennessee Freedmen's Bureau had allowed them to use the uh, former army barracks as the location of their school. And the school was established to provide an education for former slaves, people who had never had an opportunity for an education. And it be, had its first classes January 9th, 1866. There were uh, a large number of students ranging all the way from seven years old to 70 years old. <laughs> They'd all known poverty, they'd all known slavery, but everyone who went to that school had an extraordinary thirst for learning. And these three men said, we want to create an educational institution that would be open to all, regardless of race, and would measure itself, and here's how they described it, would measure itself by the highest standards, not of Negro education, but of American education at its best. And they incorporated Fisk University August 22nd, 1867. Now, the school struggled financially. They really had a hard go of it. And so one day, someone had an idea, what if we would send out some of our students as a singing group to go give concerts and maybe they could raise some money? And so they put together a group called the Jubilee Singers, and they headed out. They took with them the entire treasury of the school, <laughs> uh, praying that somehow they could raise some money. They struggled at first, and yet their performances just electrified audiences, not only in the United States, but in Europe. They moved people to tears. Here's some of the people that really praised them and promoted them, William Lord Garrison. Now, if you don't know who he is, he was probably the outstanding newspaper publisher in America at that time. Wendell Phillips, Ulysses S. Grant, William Gladstone, one of the outstanding jurors of history. Mark Twain, John Strauss, Queen Victoria. <laughs> 
So these people were enthralled. And one thing, no one had ever heard spirituals before. <laughs> and for the first time, spirituals were introduced uh, to the general public. And the Jubilee Singers raised a lot of money. And the school continued. Now, it was a custom at Fisk University, special times of the year for the students to wander up the halls, wander out on the lawn and singing various songs. And one thing they sang was the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And they changed the words depending upon the time of the year. For instance, in Easter, the last refrain was, Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus lives today. <laughs> but of course, Christmas time they sang, Go tell it on the mountain, Jesus Christ is born. You know, we all have memories. One of my sweetest Christmas memories is attending a concert at John Marshall School. I don't remember the exact year, right before 1970. And one of my children was singing in the choir, and at John Marshall Grade School, the choir sang, Go Tell It on the Mountain. <laughs> A great song. Let's sing this song. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. That Jesus Christ is born While shepherds kept their watching O'er silent flocks by night Behold throughout the heavens There shone a holy light Go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born while shepherds feared and tremble when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus and hailed our Savior's birth Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Down in a lowly stable, the humble Christ was born. And God sent us salvation, that blessed Christmas morn, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain, that Jesus Christ is born. Phillips Brooks physically was a giant of a man. Not only in physical stature, but also a man who had a great mind, a tender heart, and he was a powerful preacher. <laughs> Homiletic students today study some of Phillips Brooks' sermons as a classic example of how sermons should be uh, written. He also was a poet. He 
was brought up in a very pious New England home. His father insisted that every Sunday morning, every child memorize a hymn. And then every Sunday night in their family, they had devotions, and each child had to recite the hymn that he had memorized that Sunday morning. And when Brooks enrolled in college, he was able to recite by memory at least 300 hymns. And later on, as he became the great preacher, those hymns would come out from time to time uh, in his sermons. When he was 29 years old, he had the privilege of traveling to the Holy Land and also on Christmas Eve found himself on the hills outside of Bethlehem. And he later wrote that as he stared at the starry sky on one hand and looked down into the city of Bethlehem and saw those silent streets and realized that he was on the hillside where the very shepherds had been the night that the angel occurred, he was deeply moved. And there were words, of course, that he began being a poet <laughs> to come to mind. Now, three years later in 1868, the Sunday school superintendent asked the preacher, Brooks, if he could write a Christmas hymn that the children could sing in their Christmas program. So he put on paper the words that had come to him that night as he had been on the hillside looking down into the streets of Bethlehem. But what about the music? Well, the organist was a man named Louis H. Redner, and he asked Redner, would you write a tomb to go with this poem? Redner said, I'll do so, but I only want a tune that has come from God. And so he prayed, and he prayed, <laughs> and he prayed, but there was no inspiration, absolutely nothing came to him. He went to bed Christmas Eve, and as he later told the story, he said in the middle of the night, he dreamt that angels were singing, and he abruptly woke up with a melody still sounding in his ears. He grabbed paper, quickly wrote a score, and wrote that tune. The next morning, he wrote the harmony. In the rest of his life, Redner always insisted that the tune to a little town of Bethlehem was truly a gift from heaven. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Doesn't this sound like what Brooks saw on the hillside? Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ was born of Mary and gathered all above. 
While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. Oh, morning star, together proclaim thy holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his hymn. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come with us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. We're now going to sing um, an angel medley of three songs, but before we do, let me briefly comment on each one. Because in English Protestant churches, reflecting really the Roman Catholic custom, only the choir was allowed to sing. And so on Christmas, the villagers would go outside and sing in the streets. They sang, they danced, and they celebrated Christmas, creating really like jazz musicians, <laughs> their own songs, and their own verses. Now, one of these Christmas folk songs was the first Noel. Now, it's not known whether it was first sung in France or first sung in England, but traveling people going around singing, wandering minstrels, carried this song about the countryside in both nations. Now, it wasn't a song for the church, never sung in church, but it was sung in the street, and sung in the home, and really was an important part in England of the Christmas season. The custom was, in England, the family would all gather together and go out in the woods a couple of days before Christmas. They'd find a big tree, and they would cut it down, and then they would make a long log, and they would hollow that log out and drag it back home and stick it in the fireplace. Then they would fill it with spices and oils. And on Christmas Eve, they would gather at the fireplace, they would light the Yule log and sing the first Noel. And their belief, perhaps superstitious, was that if the log didn't go out but burned all through the season, the family would have good luck in the coming year. 
John and Charles Wesley were much aware of the power of music. Luther, years before, had said one of the most effective ways to teach people doctrine is to put it to music. Because he said when people sing, of course they absorb it, and the doctrine gets in them even when they're not aware of it, because music just does that. Well, the Wesleys agreed with Luther. And so for them, congregational singing was very important. You probably know that Charles Wesley composed more than 6,000 hymns. How many a week would that be? He wrote one hymn called A Hymn for Christmas Day. We know it as Hark the Aerial Angels Sing. 1743, Whitfield didn't exactly like the words, changed them a little bit. The next adjustment came in the form of a man named William H. Cummings. Cummings was an outstanding singer, and Felix Mendelssohn had even had him in the choir that sang the very first uh, performance of his oratorio, Elijah. And so Cummings just became enamored with Mendelssohn's songs. Well, one day Mendelssohn wrote a song to celebrate the of all things, the 400th anniversary of the invention of Gutenberg's printing press. Can you imagine writing a song to celebrate that? But he did. Cummings said, my, the tune is beautiful, but the words. And so he started to look for words. And he took Wesley and Whitfield's Hark the Herald Angels Sing and put it to those words. And that's the song we sing today. Now, the French song we know as Angels We Have Heard on High is completely anonymous. No one knows who wrote it. Matter of fact, if you look in a hymnal and find that song, if that hymnal is accurate, it will not have anyone listed as the lyricist or the composer. But the origin of the song is known. Now, if anybody here can yodel, maybe you can understand this better than I. <laughs> But it was a custom in southern France on the hills on Christmas Eve for the shepherds, as they always yodel one another, on Christmas Eve they would yodel Gloria and Excelsius Deo. And they would yodel that from this hill to that hill to that hill like an echo. It would go round and round and round and round. Now, I don't know what yodeling Gloria and Excelsius Deo might sound like, there's someone here that can give a demonstration. Please don't do it till after the service. <laughs> Sometime in the 18th century, and no one knows who, someone took the yodel <laughs> and added some verses that created the lovely carol that we know as Angels We Have Heard on High. First published in France in 1885, seven years later in English in England, and of course, now in America. Now, we're going to sing these next three carols. The first, Noel, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Angels We Have Heard on High. Let's just sing the first verse of each of these. The first Noel the angels did say was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay in fields where they 
lay keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, 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 born is the King of Israel. Hark the herald shall sing glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the old angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Placide Caprio was a Catholic, but he never attended church. Frankly, didn't care much for church. But he's known in his community as an outstanding poet. So even though he really thought little of church, didn't respect church, because he was such an outstanding poet, the parish priest asked him to write a poem for Christmas Mass. Caprio, for the first time in his life, began to think about the nativity and the birth in Bethlehem. And as he began to seriously meditate on that, the man underwent a tremendous transformation. He became very serious about spiritual matters and began to think of the Christ child. And he wrote this very, very beautiful poem. He thought, well... This needs to be set to music, and so he approached his friend Adolf Adam. He said, would you set this poem to music? He did, and the result is Cantique de Noel that we know as O Holy Night. Now, this song is significant for many reasons, but here's one reason. Christmas Eve, 1996, rather, uh, 1906, pardon me, for the first time, a human voice was broadcast over the radio. A chemist who had worked for Thomas Edison for the very first time, Christmas Eve, 1906, broadcast a voice over the radio. He read Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. Then on his violin, he played A Holy Night, first piece of music to ever be broadcast. 
Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the world felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious dawn. Fall on your knees, O Christ was born, all night divine, all night, all night divine. Well, we're going to skip to joy to the world to close. The clock's getting away from us. Story of joy to the world is the story of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is known really is a father of human hymnody, not because he wrote so many, but he was the man who really made hymn singing a part of the church. Um, for, for really, throughout history up to his point, most of the music in church were the Psalms in some form. John and Charles Wesley's father commented on this, said, they're scandalous doggerel, <laughs> and that was the opinion of many. Well, Isaac Watts' father was a deacon in a nonconformist church. His mother was uh, the daughter of a French Huguenot uh, refugee. And because of his father's nonconformist beliefs, his refusal to be a part of the Church of England, twice he was imprisoned because of his faith. First 14 years of the boy's life, the family underwent great persecution because of their beliefs. They went hungry. The places they lived were filthy, and the deprivation and unhealthy living conditions probably are what contributed to the fact that Isaac Watts was a very sickly child and never grew beyond five feet of height. One Sunday morning after the service, he was complaining about the horrible songs, and one of the deacons said, okay, Give us, he didn't say okay, didn't say okay back in those days, but colloquially speaking, he said okay. Give us something better, young man. (laughs) That's what Isaac Watts did. He went home, wrote a song, brought it that Sunday night, and the church sang it. (laughs) And here here are the words, and and as you listen to these words, you know this man's future history, they were almost prophetic. Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst his Father's throne. Prepare new honors for his name. And here's the line. And songs before unknown. (laughs) He began to preach several years later. And he just, hymns and songs just float out of his pen like a river. And so every place he preached, the congregation sang all these songs that he kept writing. He finally 
uh, put out a hymnal called Hymns and Spiritual Songs. And then he thought, you know, I'd like to go back to the Psalms and not actually copy David, but like to imitate him, his style. And so he would take a psalm and he'd try to create something in the style of what David wrote. And Joy to the World is an imitation of the last half of Psalm 98. The song, the tune itself, came from Handel's Messiah, the beginning of the uh, chorus, Lift Up Your Heads. So this morning, let's close by singing Joy to the World. Let's stand. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat their sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of Thank you, Jim. Wonderful stories and uh, gives new meaning to some of those carols for us, doesn't it? Just a reminder, we have our potluck following the service. Uh, would encourage you to, uh, if you have young children, go through the line with your kids. We're going to pray for that meal now, so when you go back to the fellowship hall, you can go right through the line and begin to eat at your leisure, okay? Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these stories of these Christmas carols, many of which have been sung for centuries, Lord. And we're grateful, Father, mostly for the truths that they proclaim, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords became flesh and dwelt among us and lived a sinless life and died for us and was raised again. We're grateful for these truths, Lord God, and we thank you for this season. We thank you for this time together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the meal we're about to enjoy with one another. Bless our fellowship, Lord God. Bless our conversations. Accomplish your purposes in our midst today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.